Apostle Paul has assigned Pastor Titus to have nothing less than a family talk with just about every age group in the assembly. And as we've already seen together, Paul hasn't pulled any punches, has he? His words have been both convicting and encouraging at the same time. He's skinned our hides, so to speak, while at the same time he's provided fresh vision and fresh hope for our hearts. He's raised the level of responsibility for us all as well as the level of understanding. And he's also elevated and distinguished and applauded the roles of older men, older women, young wives and mothers. And now the Spirit of God, through the Apostle Paul, is going to focus the lens of his microscope onto the lives of young men. As we've already noted together, this age group, which would probably in the mind of Paul be about 49 and down, is virtually hanging in the balance. There's a dearth of leadership in the Christian community. I've often had conversations with the kind of men that we'll have this summer that you've seen in your brochure, leaders out there, and we talk about the dearth of leadership, the lack of of candidates to take posts of leadership in Christian ministries and churches in this particular age group. Young men between the ages of 18 and 34, we've noticed, are especially vulnerable in our culture today. They have, many of them, been placed on spiritual and emotional life support. The condition is critical. Many of them may never be able to breathe on their own. In fact, one of the most endangered species within the ministry of the church is a vitally engaged, responsibly active, spiritually maturing young man. For the most part, they've grown up without godly men as fathers. More than that, I should say more than ever, the distractions of our digressing culture are claiming more and more of the attention of this core member of the family, the young men. One article I read recently, in fact, several articles have just come out, USA Today this past week, CNN just this past week with an article called The Demise of Guys. I mean, all of it illustrative of what we've been talking about, and if CNN understands it, you know that it must be obvious. Uh, One article I read recently recorded some statistics that single young men are wandering in a prolonged phase of adolescence. And I've mentioned that even the Academy of Sciences has, has stretched that age of adolescence between now the onset of puberty and the age of 34. One author writes, and a secular writer, by the way, once upon a time, the subject of video games was something relative to young boys and young girls. But those boys have grown up to become child man gamers, turning a small niche industry into a $12 billion a year powerhouse. He goes on to say, men between the ages of 18 and 34 are now 
the biggest gamers of all, according to Nielsen Media. And almost half of them in that category are playing on average two hours and 43 minutes a day, which is 13 minutes longer than 12 to 17-year-olds who evidently have some chores to finish. The author went on to analyze these trends among 18 to 34-year-olds and then offered a hopeful challenge without really knowing it, especially for those within the church, even though this was a secular author and article. But I found it interesting that this author summarized by writing, and I quote, with no one to challenge younger men to deep connections, they swim across life's surfaces without diving deeper. Get this, young men need a culture that can help them define worthy aspirations. Hello? And note this last sentence, because you see, adults do not emerge. They are made. See, long before the 21st century arrived with all of its advancements and technologies and games and corruptions and distractions and digressions, the Apostle Paul would have actually agreed square on with that author. Adults don't just happen, they're fashioned. Spiritual maturity is not guaranteed. It must be modeled. Which is why... Paul begins his family talk to young men in Titus chapter 2 by giving Titus a rather loaded command. Notice, let's go back to verse 6 and pick it up where we left off by telling Titus here to urge the young men. Urge. Urge them. This is the same verb that Paul uses in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I urge you. By the mercies of God. Present your body as a living sacrifice. It has the idea of pleading. It has the nuance of, of begging. It's from the word parakalao, which means literally this compound verb to call alongside. Kalao, to call para alongside. Or to call beside. It's a word used in the New Testament for preaching. There's an urging, there's a pleading to come alongside the truth of that which is being expounded. It's also a word used for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's called the paraclete, kletos, John 14, 16. And also the ministry of Jesus Christ in 1 John 2, 1, which is translated advocate, same verb. He calls us alongside himself. So what Paul is commanding Titus to do is is come alongside the young men in his preaching and in his personal pleading and the other men with him to urge young men to live a lifestyle that he's about to describe for us. And it happens to be a lifestyle that flies in the face of everything these young men grew up to know on the island of Crete and what our young men have come to know in this culture today here. By the way, the apostle Paul uses in this verb to urge the present tense, which means this is ongoing. This is not a weekend seminar for young men, and there we we nailed that one down. This is ongoing. Because Paul understands that one of the greatest dangers for Christian young men 
and every other Christian for that matter, is not some sudden moral blowout that everybody notices, but a slow leak that nobody picks up on. See, the enemy is not going to come in here and try to get young believers to deny God at some moment in time. He's going to try to get them to forget about God over a period of time. And as the younger believers look at us, the older believers are wondering, have we forgotten about God? So Titus, this is your calling. Give it everything you've got as you, as you plead with young men to follow a radically different pattern for living and a pattern which he now describes. And I'll divide it into three sections, of course. Paul begins with a pattern for the way young men are to act. Notice again verse 6. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. And I think that's where the semicolon goes. You can render it in every aspect of life urge the young men to be sensible. And there's that word again, sensible. We've encountered it several times. The elders of the church were required, if they were qualified to lead, to be sensible. Chapter 1, verse 8. Older men were told to be sensible. Chapter 2, verse 2. Young women were commanded to be sensible, down in verse 5 of chapter 2. And eventually Paul's going to get around to commending the entire church body to live sensibly, chapter 2 and verse 12. So we've dealt with the word, but just by way of refreshing our memory, a synonym for sensible, and you can write into the margin of your Bible perhaps, is the word, compound word, self-control. In all things, exercise self-control. And one author defines self-control, or this, this word in the Greek language, rather perceptively. He, he said this, he said, self-control is the ability to see a godly goal and choose that goal over and against competing desires and emotions. And this would be particularly challenging to young men who can be impulsive and passionate and ambitious. They're going to win the world. They're going to get it by the tail. So self-control is the ability then as you pursue that to discern a godly goal and choose to pursue that goal knowing that other desires are going to want to get in the way. And you're constantly exercising this discipline of refusal. And how appropriate is that? Especially for young men when their company or their Campus is offering temptation with a rather compelling voice where they often begin to study or work away from home and from the influences of the past and their heritage where they haven't yet taken on the responsibilities of a home or a family which depends upon their energy. They don't have obligations yet which tend to anchor their emotions. They have time and discretionary money, which can easily be spent on themselves. They have a train load of confidence with only a wagon load of experience. So is it any wonder that Satan and the world system would collaborate with our fallen flesh, 
to spend so much time and energy to snag, to enslave, to shipwreck young men where they've barely gotten away from the dock. I mean, the world around them is saying, you've arrived at a legal age, whatever that means. You're on your own. You've now arrived. It depends on where you want to arrive. Paul says if you want to arrive at a godly place, you want to find life that matters. If you want to follow a pattern toward making a genuine contribution of the gospel, then let self-control steer the ship of your emotions and desires your very life. And let's admit it, the words self-control aren't exactly representing the most glamorous of virtues. It sounds like medicine. I can remember as a kid in elementary school, they had that self-control section on my report card. I hated to see that grade. Self-control. Always needed improvement. Needs improvement. I mean, it isn't exactly the most exciting part of life. But when a young man matches passion and energy and vision and eagerness with self-management, self-control, something really great is going to come out of that life. I love the way one author, Chuck Swindoll, many of you are familiar with his ministry, on the radio paraphrased these verses in this paragraph to young men to read. I'll just read his paraphrase. Titus, help younger men learn how to apply the brakes to life. <laughs> Help them understand how to bridle their tongues and control their tempers. Help them know how to curb their ambition and to purge themselves of greed. Show them how to master their sexual impulses and how to follow their minds instead of their glands. Teach them to be responsible stewards of money rather than squanderers. Show them the rewards of unselfish leadership and the folly of self-centered Pursuits, well put. Self-control, this is the pattern for how you are to act. Now he goes on to add a challenge to Titus, and it's specifically to Titus, but it's really through Titus, who is a young man, by the way, and through him to the other young men. Look at verse 7. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds. And would you underline, at least in your mind, if you've got a pencil, underline it in your text, those first words in this phrase, show yourself. If you're going to be any help to young men or any younger believer in Christ, for that matter, you have to show them. There's no such thing as armchair Christianity. Become an example. Live it out. The younger generation is, is, is watching, in fact, knowing the Bible without living the Bible will produce a generation who really don't even want to know the Bible, much less live the Bible. If it didn't matter to us, why would it ever matter to them? See, Paul is not telling Titus to call in a few plays from the lazy boy. You know, tell them what they're to do next. He's commanding Titus to get into the game and play out the pattern of godly living in flesh and blood. Titus, 
show them. Don't just urge them. Don't just plead with them. Don't just beg them. Demonstrate what it means to stop playing games and start living, Paul writes here, passionate about good deeds. Do you notice that? Good deeds. Happens to be a theme in Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, both of them young pastors. Women are to adorn themselves in good deeds, 1 Timothy 2.10. Widows were to have a reputation for good works, 1 Timothy 5.10. Wealthy people were to be rich in good deeds, 2 Timothy 2.21. We're told that the Bible equips the believer for every good deed, 2 Timothy 3.17. Then in the letter to Titus, young men are told to be involved in good deeds, chapter 2, verse 7. The church at large is to be zealous for good deeds, chapter 2, verse 14. Christians are to be alert and ready on go to engage in good deeds, Titus 3, 1. And Christians should be careful to engage in good deeds, Titus 3, 8. And we as a church should be willing to learn how to perform Good deeds, Titus 3, 14. Good deeds, good deeds, good deeds, good deeds, good deeds, good deeds. Now, don't misunderstand the emphasis. Paul is not defining how you become a Christian. He's describing how you live like a Christian. And for those of us who believe the doctrines of grace, we can so overcompensate for a salvation that is merited. And there are a billion people plus on the planet many more who believe they're earning their way to heaven. Yes, we believe that you are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. We discover from the scriptures alone. Those are the four alones or the four solas of the doctrines of grace for the glory of God alone. Paul will make it crystal clear, in fact, In this same letter, we'll eventually get to chapter 3 where he says we've not been saved on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. We have been justified by his grace and we have been made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Titus 3, 5 to 7. Our salvation is not earned by good deeds. None of us could do enough of them to compensate for all the bad deeds. We're not living good lives interrupted periodically by bad deeds. We're living a wicked life. We're trying to constantly bring under the control of the Spirit of God interrupted periodically by something good. In fact, if we could earn our way to heaven with good deeds, why did Jesus come and die on the cross? See, Paul is not telling Titus to urge unbelieving young men to live this way so they can be redeemed. He's telling young men who are redeemed to show the world how they have been and that they have been. Let's show the world another way to live. And it isn't about yourself. It's about doing something good for somebody else. I went on our website, Colonial's website, Just surfed around looking for good deeds. Found a lot of opportunities. Whether it's working with a rescue mission, 
whether it is this bumper crop and filling bags up for food for those who are needy, and along with that will come the gospel, serving with Converting Hearts Ministries, working with college students, taking crafts and games to a local mobile home park, serving on a crisis response team, where when a natural disaster strikes, this team's ready to go and volunteers working with them, and you won't believe the agony they went through to be able to do that, all the licensing and, and all of the governmental codes and regulations. They're finished. They're ready to go. They're, they're praying for a hurricane to come and can't wait to get started. And then internationally, two teams touched down. I was just told a little bit ago that our team to China just touched down safely. A team heading to Africa, they're still in the air dedicating their own time and energy and and help to do good things for people who need help. And with that comes the gospel, which demonstrates the grace of God who reached us when we could not help ourselves. This happens to be the pattern for how young men are to act. Secondly, he's going to talk now about a pattern for how young men are to think. Notice the end of verse 7. Titus, now you as an example, and all the young men likewise, are to have purity in doctrine. Pure doctrine literally means uncorrupted, untainted doctrine. See, young men, young people at large, are more likely to be carried away by doctrinal novelties than the older set who've arrived at their conclusions after years of study and a dedication in and to the Word of God. What Paul is effectively telling all young men to do then is to get a head start. Don't assume that one day you'll understand sound doctrine. It's just going to happen. Now get, a, get a head start on it. Get started on it today. Understanding truth, the truth of God's Word. And this is not, by the way, knowing some answers to fill out on a doctrinal examination. This is a reference to literally developing a Christian mindset. A Christian mind. To have minds that are reformed. Paul knew it would be impossible to live like a Christian unless you think like a Christian. And Christian thinking, a Christian mind is governed by and determined by directed by sound doctrinal truths that are discovered not in ourselves, not in our world, but in this book. And our generation, of all generations, while our culture digresses, the church is digressing. Because in modern church history, now more than ever, we are in the process of abandoning doctrinal instruction. Mention the word doctrine and the eyes just glaze over. I, I want church to be fun, you know, relevant. You know, we, we, we want an event. We don't want doctrinal preaching and teaching. Everything has to be either funny or relevant or quick or, or whatever. And so our generation, one author said, is suffering from spiritual anorexia. That is, they've lost their appetite for doctrinal substance. I had a guy, and I think I mentioned this to you before, I came from a seminary, just finished a semester, visiting back home. He came up to me after I preached this sermon, and he said, you did exactly what our professor said not to do in homiletic. 
So what did I do? He said, you, you preached verse by verse, and you mentioned theological terminology. We're told not to do that. That's an evangelical seminary, by the way. Listen to the thinking process of the psalmist who wrote, Oh, how I love your law. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies. They're ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers. I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than those older than me, for I obey your precepts. My my soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Remove the false way from me. Graciously grant me your law. I cling to your testimonies. Oh, Lord, do not put me to shame. I shall run after your commandments. You will enlarge my heart. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will observe them to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. I shall not forget your word. How's that for passion? You cannot act like this. You can't think like this. You will never think like this unless our minds are saturated with that which reforms our minds. Titus urged the young men to become devoted to the Word of God. Tell them they cannot have the wisdom of God apart from the Word of God. You cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. And let me add, while I'm on the subject, men, just read the Word, obviously. Meditate on the Word. Memorize the Word. But then read, read widely on, on subjects related to the Word that illustrate the Word, that dramatize the truth of the Word, that illuminate the Word. Good devotional works. Books that inspire Christian leadership. Christian thinking and living. You only have so much time. Why read junk? Did you know that in the Christian community... Three out of every four books are purchased by women. The truth is our generation of men has stopped reading. The average man buys a book and never gets past the third chapter I've read. So if you're an author, put it all into the first three chapters because that's all they're going to get. I mean, think about it. You decided to read through the Bible. You probably decided that a few times. And so the book of Genesis, you've read more often than any other book in the Bible. You've got to get to the Leviticus, slug through numbers. It might be better advice to young men. Rather than try to read the Bible through in a year, pick one book of the Bible and study it for a year, which is what we happen to do together as a congregation. We study a book every year. (laughs) Sometimes we take a wee bit longer. We're never going to become knowledgeable in sound doctrine unless we study it and read it and become acquainted with it and become saturated with it. So I'd recommend go go buy the devotional My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers. It's a devotional with some teeth to it. Then when you finish that, go buy his biography and be inspired by what he encountered and accomplished before he died in his early 40s. Read a book that many leaders in our Christian community have said influenced them. One of the top three books, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. 
Read A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy and uh, the Pursuit of God. Pick up a copy of Charles Ryrie's Basic Theology. If you want more than that, you can buy one volume theologies about that thick. You can buy ten volumes of systematic theology that just sort of puts it all there for you to follow. Read a biography of some Christian from the past. I'm making my way slowly, among other things, through Warren Wiersbe's classic compendium simply called 50 People Every Christian Ought to Know. Just a chapter on different men and women that have impacted their world for Jesus Christ. Purchase John MacArthur's book, Right Thinking in a World Gone Wrong. That'll keep you up at night. Biographies, doctrinal reading, in addition to the study of the Word of God, all of them have a way of creating a biblical filter through which you rinse your thoughts and your decisions and your perspective. If we don't have that filter, we're going to believe whatever our decision, whatever our thoughts, whatever our perspective sounds good to me. We're not developing a filter as our minds are reformed and you got to stay at it. One author said the mind is like a, a garden. If it is not carefully looked after and cultivated, it quickly becomes a wilderness. Sounds like my front lawn. So it is with a Christian mind. You leave it alone, it will swiftly become worldly in its thinking. Why do you think the Apostle Paul is telling Titus to tell older men and older women and younger women and younger men to live like this? Because the implication is what? They're not. Or they may not. The mind, apart from the guidelines of untainted truth, can justify anything. I mean, how can something be wrong that's bringing me so much happiness? God's will is for me to be happy, so what I'm doing is I know the will of God. We need to accept everybody in the church, no matter what they're doing. The purpose of the church, by the way, if you've forgotten, is to meet my needs. My marriage was never God's will to begin with. You know, the problem with Christians I'm coming to believe is that they're just way too judgmental. I'm no bigger sinner than anybody else in that church. See, that's... Those are thinkings and perspectives that are unfiltered. They haven't been purified. The problem with the church is not that we're teaching too little. We're not teaching enough. If you want young men to think correctly and to grow in Christ, they've got to learn of Christ and become acquainted with the doctrines of Christ and the commands of Christ which come from the Word. Now notice Paul adds at the end of verse 7, Another aspect of how they are to think, which of course is reflected in how they act. Young men are to be dignified. Now we've already encountered this word as well. I find it interesting that older men were told to be dignified. And now younger men are told to be dignified too. And that had, if you remember, the aspects of living with a sense of gravity, sanctity, respect, ability. The word speaks of a willingness. We challenged older men to grow up and act like their age. You remember that? 
And it was harsh. I, I got a three-page email from somebody who said, man, you are just way out of line. You let the old men have it like that. Way too hard on old men. I preached on older women the next Sunday, and he wrote me an apology. He said, oh, you were so hard on the older women. I apologize for what I said about the older men thing. <laughs> Dead serious. He's now talking about young men. Describe someone who is worthy of respect. This doesn't mean the Christian young man is a, you know, a, a cold wash rag. Whatever you do, don't invite that guy to anything. Just comes in and just sucks the energy out of the room. It doesn't mean he can't have fun and laugh. What it does determine is what he considers fun. And that at which he laughs. So the dignity that Titus is to model for young men and for young men to model to their world has this aspect of seriousness that earns you the right to be heard. The world is not going to take your Christianity seriously if you don't. If it's trivial to you, it'll never be significant to them. Which is exactly what Paul has in mind as he talks about what your world is hearing from you in this next dimension of patterning godliness. He not only delivers a pattern for the way young men act and the way young men think, but thirdly now Paul talks about the way young men speak. Verse 8, we're to be sound in speech, the young men are to be, which is beyond reproach. Sound comes from that word again, hygiene, healthy, clean, and lagos, the word. You are known for your clean words. Now for the Greeks, the term lagos could have a number of connotations. Jesus Christ is called the lagos, the explanation of God. In Ephesians 4, however, Paul uses it in a very daily kind of context. And here also in Titus, this is the context of normal day-to-day speech. This is just how you talk. It's a reference to your vocabulary. I mean, we've been scaling the heights of true doctrine, and now he's going to get down to how we talk. See, a pattern for godly Living is not just how a young man acts or thinks, but even down to the nitty-gritty of how he talks. And I can't help but wonder what kind of example we as older men are in modeling for the younger men. Do we pray, now understanding at our age, with the psalmist, Lord, you're going to need to set a watch, a guard, before my mouth... You're going to need to keep the door of my lips. Psalm 14.3. Because our world out there says, as unbelievers are quoted in Psalm 12 verse 4, our lips are our own. Who will be the Lord over us? That's the unbelievers. You're not going to tell me how to talk. In fact, I know immature believers who would say, you, you, you can't tell me how to talk. I got liberty. Don't you know the First Amendment? Freedom of speech? Yeah, I do. But the maturing Christian understands that our freedom of speech is not a license to speak anything. We, we are not free to say things that discredit the gospel or hurt the reputation of Christ. 
which is, by the way, the direct motive of clean speech. Paul gives us here at the last phrase of verse 8. Look there. So that your opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. You know why you ought to be talking with clean language? So that your opponent can't have anything dirty to say about you. So don't say dirty things. And if you don't say dirty things, they can't say dirty things about you in the church. Now, I think it's surprising. In fact, I want you to notice at the end of verse 8, a rather surprising pronoun there. You'd think Paul would have written, so that, now you young men, speak with clean language, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about you. It's not what he says, is it? Having nothing bad to say about us. You see, you develop a godly reputation, and guess what? The church ends up with a godly reputation. And it works the other way around. Whatever you are like in your world, your world thinks that we're all the same way. How you think, talk, and act on that campus or in that boardroom or in that corporation or that neighborhood, they just assume if you're part of this church, then that's the way we all are. We all think that way. We all talk that way. We all act that way. Our reputation as a body of believers, a local assembly, is directly tied to each of our individual reputations out there. So if you're not acting like a Christian, not thinking like a Christian, not talking like a Christian, you have my permission to never tell anybody where you go to church. <laughs> Keep it a secret. Tell them you go to Providence. <laughs> Don't tell my friend David Horner I said that, okay? In fact, a couple came up after the first service and said, we're from Providence. I thought, oh, no. <laughs> but but here's, the, here's the exciting challenge. God's method, Howard Hendricks used to love to say this, i never forget it. God's method has always been to take a clean person and drop him in the middle of a corrupt culture. It's true, isn't it? He takes a clean person, drops him into the middle of a corrupt culture, where they reveal through their everyday conversation, which is clean, through their thinking process, which is governed by biblical truth, through the way they act, which is self-controlled and dignified, through all of that, this clean person who's been dropped into a corrupt culture is able to demonstrate what it means to follow the true and living God. And you live, young men, you live with a growing sense of awareness. And Paul wants you, young men, to grab it by the collar. Now it isn't just about you. It is about us. And ultimately, it's about the character and honor of the one who leads us, Jesus Christ. I love the way the Apostle Peter put it in his first letter where he wrote, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Those unbelievers. Keep your behavior excellent so that in the thing which they slander you as sinners... They may, because of your good deeds, end up glorifying God. We ultimately show our world by talking and living and thinking differently than our world, and in so doing, showing them something far, 
better. A few months ago, and I close with this, I met a former professional football player. He used to play for the Chicago Bears. hope that's not offensive to you. Big guy. Six, seven, six, eight. I just knew. I talked to him like this. After some initial conversation, I steered the discussion to spiritual things. He didn't know I was a pastor. And I invited him to church. And he immediately began to smile. He said, well, I, I don't have time. I thought, man, this is great. I said, what do you mean you don't have time? He said, well, you know, I, I, um, I'm a businessman, but on Sunday I have a circuit and I travel around the state of North Carolina giving my testimony and, and delivering the gospel to juvenile detention centers and jails and prisons. So I said, wow, that is fantastic. Would you share your testimony with me? He said, I'd be glad to. So he, he told me, kind of fast-forwarded the tape to his professional career. He said, I was living the dream. I, signed, I was signed early in the NFL draft. Had several years winning seasons. He said, the pinnacle of my career was beating the Dallas Cowboys. I said, praise God. I'm so glad that happened. <laughs> he said, we won that game because on one play I rushed Troy Aikman and caused him to fumble, and I picked up the fumble and ran for a touchdown. He said, I can remember this was the ultimate he said, I, I, I can remember spiking the ball in the end zone right on top of the star in the carpet, the Dallas Cowboy logo. I said, man, I'd love to live that dream for just a moment. He said, but in the hotel room that night, the euphoria of all of it had gone. And he said, I was sitting there alone. And he said, I was overwhelmed with a sense of emptiness. He said, this had been my dream. And in my position, this is the ultimate play. And he said, I realized then there had to be something bigger and better. He said, it wasn't long until I picked up a Bible and began to read it. God connected me with some believers and I eventually understood the gospel and accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he told me, big grin, he said, you know, that moment in the Dallas Stadium cannot compare to seeing some young man give his heart to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying to young men. You know, as you, as you live your life and you chase your dreams, and it might be playing football, just remember there's nothing more important than the credibility of your testimony. There's nothing more vital than the delivery of the gospel. There's nothing more critical than the reputation of the church, your brothers and sisters, whose reputation hangs upon yours. And there's nothing more ultimately glorious than bringing honor and attention and praise to our great Redeemer and Savior, Jesus Christ. Live 
think, act, speak with that in mind. You may have come in here so burdened and weighed down with something unrelated. God has a way of taking the word and ministering both hope and conviction and maybe in that area you need to just quietly and quickly speak with the Lord, make an appointment for later, but just tell him you're willing. All the young men here, do you tell the Lord you're willing? All the older men willing to model, older women the same, younger women, wives and mothers committed to untainted truth that we'll never hear outside the family of Christ. And so, Father, thank you for the opportunity to reinforce it in here and as we huddle together. We're about to break huddle and enter our world. May we all so act and think and speak that you ultimately receive great glory. Let's close by singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow said? Amen. Amen.